When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Jordana Levine, and you're listening to the Inspired Table Podcast. Each week, you'll be led down an inspired path of curiosity as I chat to some of my favorite soul-centered folk about the things that inspire me daily in the hope that some of that juicy inspiration will rub off on you. So pour yourself your favorite cuppa and take a seat at my table. I promise you'll leave happier, healthier, and bursting with inspiration. Welcome to season five of the Inspired Table podcast. I'm your host, Jordana Levine, and I have had a much needed hiatus from recording this podcast while I have been writing my first book. Yes, I was given the honor of a publishing deal. I'm so super excited. Um, And what an experience writing a freaking book is. Oh my God, I did not know what I was in for. Um, If you've been following me on social media, I've been giving pretty much a blow-by-blow journey of my experience. Um, And at this point in time, the first draft has just been handed in to my publisher. And I tell you all of this because you'll probably find that throughout this season... I talk about writing a lot. It's of interest to me at the moment. Um, And I've been talking about it with a lot of my guests, especially the writing process. And even if you're not a writer, I think that this will still resonate with you. In this world of social media, we're all writers, really, (laughs) in some capacity. You know, it's either an Instagram caption or a Facebook post or writing texts or emails to a friend. We're all writing. Um, And today's guest in particular really explores this concept with me. Amy Malloy is a freelance journalist, author and editor who writes content for the biggest names in Australian and UK publishing. At the age of 23, Amy signed her first book deal for her memoir, Wife Interrupted, which documented her experience of being widowed. As a ghostwriter, she's authored eight books, and I just finished reading her latest book, The World is a Nice Place, How to Overcome Adversity Joyfully, and I cannot recommend it enough. I first came across Amy's work when she was writing a column for Grazia magazine about dating as a widow, and I fell in love with her writing style over what was quite a taboo topic, still is quite a taboo topic. In this conversation, we have a chat about the Australian and the UK publishing industry and how they've both changed in the past decade. We look at the book writing process, what it's like to pen a memoir for someone else, which is essentially what ghostwriting is, um, and also the topic of writing about 
adversity and what that looks like and how we can navigate that gracefully. Um, And then also a topic which is really close to Amy's heart, healing through storytelling. I loved this interview. I loved chatting with Amy. She's got so much wisdom and knowledge on both the publishing industry and her experience as a writer and editor. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did having it. I am a journalist, editor, um, author, uh, general content creator. I wear a lot of hats, but the commonality between them is all pretty much storytelling in some medium and some form. So I started my career at the Daily Mail at um, 22 in London and began um, as a very lowly um, junior reporter there and then made my way through women's magazines writing about entertainment and Kim Kardashian and a lot of things I didn't really have an interest in but enabled me to kind of hone my craft as a storyteller until um, after becoming editor at Grazia magazine in Australia and then shutting down that magazine, I then became um, a freelance journalist and was able to sit in a place where I could use all those skills I'd learned as a storyteller, but actually begin to tell the stories that I personally care about. Um, and that's how I you know, began to craft the book. That's how I became the editor of Collective Hub magazine. And um, yeah, that's kind of become the basis of my career now. Yeah, beautiful. All right, I want to unpack a little bit of all of that. First of all, tell me about the Daily Mail at age 22, because the the reputation of the Daily Mail now is probably very different to when you were working there. Is that right? I think so. Do you know, it was before the website became an absolute juggernaut. Um, Back then, it was very much about the print. And Um, It was still very cutthroat. I mean, it was in when I came out of university, I think I'm the only person within my degree year who actually became a journalist in my journalism course. Because, um, you know, if you think it's cutthroat in Australia, you need to go into tabloids or any kind of newspaper or any kind of magazine in London Mm. where you just have hundreds and hundreds of graduates all vying for these um, tiny amount of places as junior reporters and interns. And I actually, um, I worked for pretty much for free at the Daily Mail. I gave myself a year of working for basically free expenses I got, which was very minimal. And I said, I'm going to give myself a year before I come up with a plan B. And I think I got to about nine months before they realized she's not going anywhere. We're just going to have to give her a job because she just keeps (laughs) turning up day after day after day and we just can't get rid of her. So um, amazingly, in the end, they actually did give me a junior role, which was the beginning of everything. But it took a lot of, I mean, I was very lucky that my parents lived not in London, but on the outskirts. So I could live at home and do a terrible commute in every day and financially was able to, you know, just about scrape by because for a lot of writers, it's just not possible. The whole intern culture, it's just not possible. And the laws have been tightened since then. Um, but yeah, back in my day, they could kind of get away with, you know, just getting you to come in for free for as long as you put up with it. <laughs> I mean, it's still, it's still quite rough as an intern though. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the laws are in Australia at the moment, but I know when I was interning, it was, I mean, you didn't have to get paid. They could have you there for 
free, right? Yeah, well, I know in England now um, you can work at one place for a maximum of three months in an intern capacity before you have to move on to somewhere else. But um, I think there's still ways that people kind of get around that. In Australia, I don't know exactly what the laws are, but I do know that they're a lot tighter in the last two years. I read an article about it actually a little while ago, um, and they're pretty strict now. So I think you're pretty protected over here, which in, you know, it's amazing but also, you know, I, I kind of think it, it's kind of part for the course. That's right. The whole intern experience, you know. It, I know, I agree. It made me resilient. It made me grateful when I got that first paycheck. And um, I think I would do it again. I, I, I kind of loved it. Yeah. And it's all, yeah, it's all part of climbing that ladder, isn't it? It's all part of the process. Exactly. And as an editor now, you know, I've always tried to treat my interns pretty wonderfully. But, you know, you're still an intern. You're still there to kind of you know, really make coffee and you might get a a few paragraphs to write if you're lucky or you might get to go along to a wonderful photo shoot, but you're there as an intern. And I have to say, I have found a lot of interns that I've had expect on their first day to be writing 1200 word articles or styling a photo shoot Yeah. Um, and kind of don't realize that, you know, all of us kind of up here started down there. And, you know, I had some horrendous days as an intern doing insane jobs with people but um yeah it was all part of the journey yeah that's right although I do kind of wonder sometimes you know like that whole mentality of the the boss treating the junior how they were treated like having to hand down the same kind of experience and discipline and like I, I wasn't treated so well as an intern in a lot of the publications I worked in so as I progressed through I I kind of made sure that everyone was really being looked after and mm. felt like they were I think part I was just ignored a lot. Yeah. You know, I wasn't treated <laughs> badly. I was just pretty much ignored by yeah. everybody. And I think this it taught me to work really autonomously because no one ever gave me a job unless they were asking me to get coffee. Um, so it was really about kind of, you know, looking for problems you could solve and really learning to work independently, which is probably has served me really well, that skill. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely wasn't treated in like a Devil Wears Prada, like, you know, oh, horrendous well, you way. You were lucky, Amy. I know. I was just kind of left to sit in the corner. Yeah. And I got given jobs like... Um, you know, photographing all the gardening column. I did a lot of that. Oh. I, I photographed a lot of like gardening shears and pots for a while for the Daily Mail. <laughs> it was very glamorous. And like food processors. I do like the top five food processors at the moment. I remember like cutting my finger open on a food processor <gasps> in the photography studio. And because I was so young and so like scared to show a weakness. I kind of like wrapped it up in a big half a, oh half a loo roll and tried to get on with my work as I like bled down my arm. So I just did a lot of kind of mundane stuff. Um, but And it was really only when my first book came out when I was 23, I had been begging my editor at the Daily Mail to let me write anything. And I kept getting brushed aside because, um, you know, she didn't know if I could write. And, and I think she just didn't have the time to really test if I could write so I just kept getting lots of you know maybe soon maybe soon and it was only when I went out independently and got a book deal and then um that book was actually serialized by the Daily Mail by another editor that my editor went oh (laughs) she couldn't write and she's got a book deal and actually our newspaper is serializing the book (laughs) maybe we should actually give her something to work on and um, by that point, uh, two weeks later, I was offered a job at Grazia as a features writer. So, um, yeah, 
just as she woke up to the fact I could write, I left. Yeah. So well, <laughs> that's what happens. Blink that's and what you miss happens. <laughs> so that's how I um, came to know your work was mm. through your features column with Grazia. Yes. And maybe you can give people a little bit of a background on what that first book was about and what the, yes. I'm assuming the serialize at um, Daily the Mail was as well. Yeah. So I was widowed when I was 23. Um, my husband died three weeks after we got married from uh, malignant melanoma, which then spread to a brain tumor. And he actually ended up having a stroke whilst next to me in bed one night. So we knew when um, I was 23, he was 34. And we knew when we got married that his prognosis was three months to live. Um, we were engaged and it was important to him and to me that we got married before um, he passed away. So we actually knew when he got ma- we got married, when I walked down the aisle, we knew exactly what the outcome was likely to be. Um, I then entered the kind of world of 23-year-old widowhood, which is a bizarre and um, unguided place to be. Absolutely. None of the books on grief and, you know, loss resonated with me at all. I was, by that point... I moved into a house share in London with three girls I met on Gumtree who were all wonderful, um, but in their 30s and single. And a lot, um, two of them recovering from breakups and were heartbroken. And then I was recovering from burying my husband and heartbroken. And we actually then spent a couple of years, you know, doing what single heartbroken girls do, which is going out, drinking a lot and sleeping with a lot of men, which is fine, apparently, when you're heartbroken because you've been through breakup but not so fine when you're heartbroken because your husband's died of cancer and why is that because that's not the way I think a widow is meant to behave or so was the reaction that I got from certain people yeah um but no one really knew you know if I questioned them so how should I behave no one really knew the answer to that either so I ended up writing a book which was really began as a journal um you know about my experiences of that first year and it was very raw very uncensored not a way that I would write now but absolutely the way that I needed to write at my that point in my life so you know I basically wrote it in one one sitting I never really edited it um I began sending it off to publishers and before I knew it I signed a book deal at the end of 23 and it was suddenly out in the world amazing so when Mm. you when you were sending it out it was a finished manuscript it was I don't think we changed a lot of it I think we gave it a new introduction and um it was originally oh my goodness I almost forgot this it was originally called widow's threesome (laughs) (laughs) which was punchy because um when I used to lay in bed with whatever man I had taken home that night I would have him next to me and I would imagine with my other hand holding my dead husband's hand with my other hand. Goodness. So that was obviously where the title came from. It became um, Wife Interrupted. Which is which, also can, a great title. Which is still a, a amazing t- and definitely probably better than the book. Um, and, yeah, so I began sending it off to publishers. I literally brought oh – no, I sent it off to agents – so I literally bought the agent's directory, the real solid tomb of a book that you could buy. And I started at A and I began every day posting it because that's how old I am, <laughs> <laughs> posting it out to agents. 
and I got down to D before I got a letter that said we'd like to represent you and then it went off to auction and this was in the days where you actually got a good advance from book publishers and um, yeah so I found myself in my early 20s still kind of in shock from being widowed and suddenly also a published author and also sharing sharing that adversity with everybody exactly and then um yeah on the back of that suddenly it was um serialized in the mail their their headline was confessions of a scarlet widow oh god (laughs) (laughs) and i actually had headline approval because i knew just enough to ask for headline approval however i didn't know enough to then push back so i was confident enough to say i want headline approval but I don't think I'd have ever been confident enough to actually say, no, I don't want I don't that approve. headline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of, didn't really mean anything. But anyway, off it went into the world. Um, and then as part of the publicity, I wrote a feature for Grazia magazine in the UK. And their headline was, I use sex to deal with my grief, I think, or something along those lines. And it was actually a really beautiful article that I wrote myself Mm. um and a few weeks later they offered me a job and that's how really my career began to move forward so when we were getting the features in australian grazia were they just bought from the uk or we moved over here at that point no then what happened was it's all a very long story then what happened was i was working grazia uk very happily um but i kind of had the idea at the back of my mind that i wanted to emigrate to australia because i'd spent my gap year there um And Kelly Hush had just begun editing um, Grazia Australia over here and came over to the UK to meet the UK team and learn how our magazine worked. And I always got into the office super early because I'm an early bird and I'm always the first one in there. And and because I was a junior reporter and trying to prove myself. And she also arrived early too. So I made her a cup of tea and sat in the back room with her until our editor arrived. And I mentioned that, you know, I'd love to move to Australia one day, and if any job ever comes up, please let me know. Um, A few weeks later, again, um, she emailed to say, we don't have any jobs, but I'd love you to write a column for us. We we need a good columnist. Could you write me a weekly column on what it's like to be a young widow? So that's when I began writing the column. And then a few weeks after that, she emailed and said, we actually have a role for a deputy editor would you be willing to move to Australia first? What an amazing opportunity. It was incredible. I mean, it was just universally curated. Yeah. You know, it really was out of my control. It was laid in front of me in a way that I couldn't say no, in a way that like all of those fears and all the like what ifs and really should I do this um, couldn't even have an imprint because... It was just this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I just could not possibly say no to. Mm. And, yeah, that's how I ended up here. And and then Kelly moved on to Harper's Bazaar and I became editor at Grazia. And what was that that transition like for you from being features writer and deputy editor to being editor of Grazia? It was quick. (laughs) You know, that's a steep steep career transition and a steep learning curve. But I think I had had amazing training. Like I always say to anyone, if you have the opportunity as a writer or creative to begin your career in London, um, for all the struggles and the pressure and the, that goes with it, do it. Mm. Because if you can survive that environment, you can survive anywhere. And the training that I had there was just absolutely priceless. 
So actually coming over here even into a, a elevated role in a way was quite easy, I think, because yeah. I had I had worked under such insane pressure in London. Yeah. So did you find did you find the Australian print industry very different to the UK? I did actually, in only good ways. I loved the smallest smallness and the intimacy of it. I loved that the pace was much slower, even though I was still working on a weekly magazine. Um, the pace was still just so much slower. Um, and I, and that I, I don't even know because the deadlines were still the same, but it still just felt a lot more gentle. Mm. And people knew each other. Um, you know, you knew other people working. Everyone, everyone knows each other here, really within that kind of small, yeah, it is a small creative pool absolutely. Um, compared to like, you know, all of the magazines and newspapers in London, which have hundreds and hundreds of people working beneath them. It's a different environment here. And I, yeah, I've, I fell in love with it instantly. I mean, we've had in the last few years, quite a demise in the print industry in Australia. I mean, magazines mm. are just closing down monthly now, it feels. Is the same thing going on in the UK? Oh, yeah, most yeah. definitely. But, you know, I never, I mean, you know, I've closed down two magazines now. I closed down Grazia in Australia and I closed down Collective Hub. Um, and although I was sad for the losses in the fact that I loved the products and I was sad for my staff because I had incredible teams, I never felt any sort of sadness for myself because um, I think I'm 34 and I'm, so I just scrape in as Gen Y. And <laughs> I, just about. And I was born into job insecurity. I've never known mm. it any other way. Yeah. So I've always, with every job I got a magazine, I always knew that I could lose it tomorrow. Absolutely. And I always knew that the whole magazine could fold tomorrow. And so, you know, the, the people who are 10 years and five years older than me, they were really shaken when that... Um, you know, when the recession hit and the industry began to get really shaky, they just didn't know how to cope with it. And they were constantly saying, you know, complaining about it and, um, you know, worried about it and anxious about it. But to me, that's just the industry I was, I graduated into. So I think I've always had to pivot and I've always had to think about, you know, how can I diversify myself and how can I explore new avenues? And if this magazine folds, what can I do next? Yeah. Because that's the only media scene I've ever known so yeah in a way it's good because I've never been complacent and you know magazines fold and jobs get lost and then you you find a new way I think and that's one of the benefits of being able to wear all those different hats yes exactly I think it's not enough to just say anymore you know I am a journalist and I work in this sector in this field and that's what I do you know for me I do so many different things um all within the same umbrella mm. but yeah I definitely have, have known never to pigeonhole myself and then there's a flip side you know you then begin to diversify too much and you get muddled and confused and you try to do too many things so I think now I'm kind of finding the sweet spot um, you know I have the word simplify written over my desk for those times where I start to be like oh I should do this and I should do that and I should do that and I become completely overwhelmed mm. um, to try and keep a little bit of tunnel vision in what I do with my work um, so I don't yeah get too scattered with what I do yeah and I mean from what I can tell I don't know you too well Amy but from what I can tell from your social profiles you you're quite a spiritual person so yeah. I guess when something like this happens it's considered as one door closing and creating I think so. space 
yeah, and I think just from experience, it's not even kind of spiritual as much as experience. You know, I think once you lose a job or close a magazine or just, you know, have a little disappointment in your work and then you realize that that's not the end of your career, you realize that, you know, the next week or the next month something else does happen, then, you know, there's great comfort in that. I think it's probably the same as, you know, after your first breakup when you realize that actually life goes on. Yeah. And then your, ne- your next breakup, you know, it still hurts, but you probably have a lot more hope than you did when you were 16 and that boy broke your heart and you think, that's it, I'm going to be heartbroken forever. And I think the same applies to your to your career too. Yeah, that's very true. Um, now, I just finished reading your second book. Is it your second book? It depends how you count it. Yes. It's my... Second book uh, under your name. Yes, it's yes. my second book under my name. It's my, I think, 12th book in total. Okay, so that's actually what I want to talk to you about. We'll get to the specifics of the <laughs> yes. a nice place, but I want to talk about ghostwriting for a minute. Mm. I've done a lot of ghostwriting as a journalist, but ghostwriting as an author for somebody else's story, what is mm. that like? I generally love it. Um, every now and again, I have to take a break from it. And I will say to my husband, I need six months off without doing another ghostwriting project, mm. project because it takes a lot of your energy and it's a very big test for your ego, as you probably know about ghostwriting for yeah. anyone because you are pouring your heart and soul into a a body of work that no one will ever know is yours. (laughs) And then because of the world of social media, you then see the person whose name that book is under out there promoting their book saying, I've just created this book. And people (laughs) saying to them, oh my goodness, how do you manage to write a book on top of doing this and doing that? And they're, you know, they, they say, you know, well, I just, I fit it in and the words flow and you know, (laughs) I'm pretty much okay with that 80% of the time. And then every now and again, I begin to grind my teeth and that's when I know I need to take a break from ghostwriting for a while. Yeah. Um, It's a really unique and it's a process that I love. So basically involves, um, I've written novels for people. I've written um, a lot of books for experts, kind of, you know, maybe in the business field or the health field. Or I did a real estate book recently for people who have um, incredible knowledge but don't have the time or the writing capacity to form it into a book. And I've also written, um, you know, real stories for people who've experienced incredible lives and I've I've written basically memoirs for them. So all of those processes involve like a lot of interview time, hours and hours and hours of me interviewing a topic out of them. Or, you know, a lot of them have written blogs or journals. Um, I wrote a ghost wrote a book for um, someone in LA who a box, a huge box turned up on my doorstep. And when I opened it, it was just full of like pieces of paper and napkins and bits of cardboard mm. box and stuff. And I had told her, you know, when you have a thought for the book, begin to write it down. So she had just started grabbing whatever the nearest <laughs> thing was to her at the time. You know, old takeaway cont- containers, and literally posted me this insane um, kind of collection of memoir. Um, And I spent, it was like something out of a movie, I spent the next week um, pasting it all over my bedroom wall, um, pinning it all over my bedroom wall, and trying to form a collage of what, how this could then look like in a book form. That is giving me so much anxiety, just thinking about that. 
It was insane. That's probably the most um, chaotic way that I've ever worked. Yeah. But you know, she did what I asked. She got her she got her thoughts out there, and um, you know, it became it became a wonderful book. But generally, it's a lot of interview time, um, a lot of emails, and you know, maybe typed up journal entries that I then begin to form into a book. So I, um, I guess what puzzles me the most about ghostwriting, especially memoirs, is it's such a, an expression of personal experience and personal identity. And then mm. when it's being told through another, well, I guess it's through their lens, but another person is writing it, I I kind of struggle with how the how you take on their voice in, mm. in that situation? I think a good ghostwriter, um, I have always, the best piece of writing advice I was ever given by an editor at the Daily Mirror in Dublin, so real red top, as we call them, tabloid newspaper. Mm. Um, I was just out of university and I went to work there doing shifts for a couple of weeks and the first piece of published, the first published article they asked me to write was about um, someone who kept going round to the local cemeteries, um, going to the toilet on gravestones. <laughs> <laughs> I was so proud. This was like my break into journalism. I was so proud. But because I was um, just out of university and really keen to prove myself, I basically put every word through the um, thesaurus and tried to make it sound as intelligent as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and my editor, God bless him, he basically highlighted the whole article and just deleted it and said, who are you trying to be? You know, who? what do you think you're doing? This doesn't sound as you, as you speak. This isn't the way that you need to write to reach our audience. And then he gave me the best piece of advice, which was um, write as if you're speaking on the phone to your mum. And that has genuinely is how I've written every article and every book that I've written in the last 12 years is exactly how I would speak on the phone to my mum. Yeah. And that's what I do as I ghostwrite. I, I write exactly how the person speaks to me. Okay, so how they're speaking to you. Exactly. Yeah. How, like, how I'm speaking to you right now is exactly how I would write the book if I was ghostwriting about me. Yeah. Um, and I think that's how you channel their words because you're just channeling their speech um, and and so then suddenly it becomes easy because you're not guessing or how would they how would they describe this because I just need to phone them and be like can you describe this memory to me can you describe the moment that your husband left you with your two-year-old daughter how did you feel in that moment and then I write it and I guess are there moments where you find that you switch into your own tone and your own voice and you've got to unscramble that a little bit? Um, do you know what? I don't think so. And I think only because I've been doing it a long time. Yeah. Like like you, I ghost, wrote, I ghost wrote features for a long time before I did a book. Mm, okay. So at Grazia, I would ghost write a feature every single week. And it might be, um, you know, someone who survived 9-11 um, or a tsunami or, you know, a plane crash. And I would ghostwrite in that first person in their words, their experience. So I did that every week for uh, three years. So that's a lot of yeah. features. Um, and it was only kind of like 
years later that I began ghostwriting my first book. So I think I had all of that experience um, by the time I actually got to do a book in the mm-hmm. first place. You know, a lot of the ghost writing, I say in inverted commas, that I did was actually through recipe development. So I would write entire cookbooks for people. Yes. And then celebrities would put their name on it as if they'd spent hours in the kitchen That's developing recipes. I mean, it is, but it, it takes away that whole idea of needing to you know speak in their voice yeah. because it's just it's just basically food um and, and you know what I think you just have to I think the secret to ghostwriting is confidence yeah you need to not second guess yourself you need to literally just just to trust that you can do it um and just literally sit down and be like I'm that person now and write as them yeah and not overthink it because I think if you started to overthink it you torture yourself and did you so did you get much pushback from the authors or is there some sort of kind of clause with the publishers where sorry not with the authors with the well yeah I guess with the authors that are going to be on mm. the front cover is there sort of like this this clause that says you know you can have as much say in the book as you want but you can't you know take apart each and every sentence as it comes back Never anything that official. I think, you know, the, the, the fact is that, in theory, the person you're writing for could pick apart, apart every sentence because under their name and, mm-hmm. um, you know, your job is to go fight their story and they have final approval. So if they wanted to, they could tear it apart. I haven't luckily had that yet. You know, I have had um, people, I think sometimes... You know, I can explain uh, experience to you, and then it, when you see it on paper, you suddenly think, oh, God, I don't want to sound that way. So you can have people, you know, who I've quoted word for word, and yeah. actually when they see it written down, they're suddenly like, oh, <laughs> God, I, I like that? it. I don't <laughs> want to say that. And I'm like, well, I actually quoted you word for word, but it's, you know, it can be quite, quite confronting yeah. when you suddenly see it. So, I, you know, it's a collaborative effort, and, you know, there are times when it's fantastic and the person is just like amazing press go and there are other times where we do have to go back and really work together to find what the level that they're comfortable with Mm. and you know I will always say to people look I'm gonna put all of this information in because you told it to me but when we go back if you suddenly think I'm actually not comfortable sharing that um you know let's begin to strip it down because I always want to make sure they're comfortable I don't want them to have writer's regret and suddenly come back later and think oh god you know I wish I hadn't put that out there I'd rather address it early rather than that that last edit when they suddenly have a mad panic about it yeah yeah. no one wants that (laughs) no nobody wants that um okay so I do want to talk about your new book the world is a nice place yes and I've just finished reading it and the tagline for it is how to overcome adversity joyfully which Mm -hmm. I love um but you know, Amy, like I consider myself a pretty lucky person in that I haven't had any major adversities, uh, adversities in my life, like, you know, the death of loved ones or tragic accidents or, you know, incredible losses. Mm. But I was still, I was still quite surprised at how much of the book resonated with me. And I guess that's kind of what would be a realization for most people when they're reading it is that your personal adverse adversities are meaningful to you. And it doesn't diminish mm. them because there are other people that are worse off. Exactly. And I think the advice in the book, which is, is not just for me, it's taken from the hundreds of people that I've interviewed over the years. Like I said, from 9-11 survivors to, you know, people who suffered from loss and heartbreak and breakdowns and 
really little, um, you know, little, so to speak, struggles that we all face on a daily and weekly basis in work and in our love lives and with self-esteem and body issues. Um, and But I think all of their advice can actually be used for the huge chunks of adversity we face and also the the tiny little smaller everyday things that we all face as well mm-hmm. like i use the same tools that i use to um overcome my husband dying as i use when you know i get a critical email from one of my clients it's really it's a lot of them are really transferable from the big stuff to the small stuff yeah so what i wanted to concentrate on in this podcast episode with you because i think it's I think it's a really relevant issue and it's something that I've personally just gone through writing my first book and it's this idea of healing through storytelling and healing through sharing your own adversities and Mm. you obviously have been through quite a few and a lot of them come up in the book and I just wanted to talk to you about that process and whether there's a certain stage that you feel someone needs to be, let's say, in their grieving process before they start sharing that with others. And sharing could be, you know, writing a book mm. or a blog post or social media or just your About Me page, like anything like that. Yeah. So this is an area I'm now really honing in on um, in terms of trying to help more people with. Because mm. I think in this age of, you know, social media captions and Um, blogs and like you said about sections and you know even job applications and just conversations in coffee shops yeah we are all storytellers and we all have to find um, a a way to share our backstories without making ourselves feel vulnerable so I you know literally get told on a weekly basis someone will say to me like you're so brave for putting your story out there and that is not something that I feel at all because I'm at a stage in my storytelling where I know just how much to share to um, find it cathartic without feeling vulnerable and um, just enough to share to be able to help people by sharing what I've been through without making myself have that you know awful feeling in the pit of your stomach when you share something personal with the world yeah um And I think, you know, every social media caption that I write is really, truly, consciously written, every word um, and every sentence, um, to, you know, protect myself whilst sharing as well. You know, I think we don't need to overshare to be authentic and and to serve a purpose with the way we share our story. We can, um, I think self-editing is a really important tool that more and more as we live in this really public way of communicating, we're going to have to become much better at. Yes, and, and there is a lot of people who are not very good at it. I mean, oversharing is so, um, well, I guess the word is trendy at the moment, especially when it comes to social. Exactly, definitely. And, you know, uh, I had a friend, I think timing, like you discussed, is really important and protecting yourself. Um, I had a friend recently who... Um, is infertile and began the experience of looking into um, having a baby with a surrogate. And she came to me, and she's a beautiful writer, and she said, I think I'm going to live blog this journey. So with every appointment, I'm going to put a blog up that day that says what I've been through because I think it will help other people within my community who are going through this. Mm. And I was like, you know, 
in theory, that's amazing, absolutely admirable. However, why does it need to be live? You know, why do you need to come home on a Monday after spending two hours in a clinic with all of this new information that you're trying to absorb and then you sit down and write a blog post and then you press post and send it out into the world? Yeah. And I encouraged her to instead just begin to keep kind of a journal style that she is private for now and in six months down the line she can then have the space to go back on it, edit it, decide what she really wants to share and you know a couple of weeks ago I helped her to publish a amazing article on whim.com about um, the title was why I chose not to fix my infertility and it was about her choice not to go ahead with a surrogate after exploring all those options. Mm. And it was this incredible, um, consciously shared story that um, didn't make her feel vulnerable, protected the other people in her life, like her ex-partner who was there at the beginning of the journey and is no longer involved in her, protected her parents and protected herself. She still has helped all these people by sharing her story but um, it's written in a very different way than if she'd been live blogging through the process. Because she wouldn't have had an opportunity to process any of it. Exactly. She didn't know how she was feeling. She, what she really needs to do is to sit down with a friend at the end of that day and just have a conversation and have a cry and, yeah. and you know, maybe journal and, and, and still therapeutically write. But it wouldn't have been the right decision for her to just stick a blog out into the world every week every week after that. So do you think then if we are planning on sharing our personal stories that there needs to be a lesson that we that we have learned or do you think we can still be learning it as we share? Oh, absolutely learning it as we share. Yeah. But with honesty that that's what's happening. Okay. You know, in my book, there are chapters in my book where I say, I don't know the answer to this yet, or I'm still working on this, or, mm. you know, this is an area that I know is still my weakness. And I'm not saying I have the answer to every single thing in my book. Um, and I think it's important that we do share the journey whilst the journey is happening. But I think it's also pays to have a bit of a lag time. And that might be two hours, you know, write a social media caption and then let it sit in your um, notes section of your phone for an hour yeah. and revisit it and say, do I still want to use these words? Is this still, um, you know, do I still want to share this? And if so, put it out there, but just give yourself a little bit of space before you share your story. Absolutely. What about the concept of, and this must have come up for you when you were writing Wife Interrupted, what about the idea of reliving trauma that you've been through? Like, as a mm. writer, how do you, or how did you, or did you at the age of 23, perhaps that's a lesson you learnt later, how did you support yourself through that, having to relive mm. it again? I've got a lot better at it. Um, and it's actually something that I now coach people to put, um, you know, rituals and practices in place to support yourself. Because I think at the age of 23, what I did... Um, I basically wrote the whole book and then I left all the really horrible memories until the last two weeks before my book deadline. So I did this, had this awful two weeks where I basically had to like write my husband's death and my husband's funeral and you know the day I was suicidal and all of these awful memories in one sitting in yeah, one wow. go with a deadline looming over my head. Um, which you know in hindsight wasn't probably the most supportive way to put myself um, through that writing process. So now, I think for me, it's a lot about um, 
physically being in a safe space. And so for me, like I don't like writing um, traumatic memories alone in my house. I will always go to my favorite cafe and sit around a lot of people and energy and life. I will literally wear, you know, a certain outfit that makes me feel soft and feminine and light. I will wear my hair down instead of scraping it up. I will like I will I will put myself physically in a in, in a comfortable um soft safe space where I can then share that memory in a supportive way. Yeah. Um you know rather than for me it wouldn't be right for me to sit in bed at 11 o'clock at night um, typing away in the dark on my laptop about <laughs> the day my husband died. You know, that wouldn't be the best way for me. With a packet um, of Tim Tams by your side. Exactly. Yeah. When my babies are asleep in the other room and could wake up crying any moment. Yeah. Like, that is not the right time for me. And so, I, yeah, I, I, I help people to find kind of create these rituals. And ceremony um, is a word I love around writing like create ceremony around your writing. Like I light a candle when I'm writing um, certain memories because I just love that ceremony around saying, okay, this is something special that I'm sharing. Um, yeah, I, I say one of the sentences that I say, I said it before this podcast, I say it before every interview. I take a moment and I say, um, and you can change this wording to suit your belief system. But I say, um, angels of the highest truth and compassion please speak through me Beautiful. and I say that before I write anything that has real meaning to me or I do any interview um, and it just helps me to sit in a place of I think truth in hopefully in what I share Beautiful. so in terms of being in your truth and being authentic are there moments where or, or yeah are there moments where you feel like it's 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 actually a lot wiser to hold back mm. and then there's other moments where you need to kind of fill in fill in perhaps some gaps or spaces yeah and again this is something I've got much better at you know when I was 23 I felt like for the sake of the story I had to really literally tell you everything that had ever happened in my life and every thought I'd had and every you know argument with my partner and 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 every you know word exchange with my parents I thought I had to put out there um, now, for instance, I've been married three times, widowed, divorced, now wonderfully happy, happily married. And I mention in The World is a Nice Place that I'm divorced. However, um, in agreement with my second husband and out of respect for the fact that he, was a one, he is a wonderful man who got caught up in my grief, mm. I do not delve into that relationship in the book. Yeah. And I don't think it takes away from the story. I don't think I'm being inauthentic by doing that. Um, you know, it's preserving an, a part of my life that isn't just my story to tell. And, and also, uh, you know, a part that, you know, isn't necessary to tell, to, to understand the lessons within the book. So why should I put this other person out there um, when it's not necessary? It, and, it's... yeah, I don't think the reader hopefully misses out because of that. No, I think that's quite, that's quite a poignant piece for me. Um, I just have finished writing my first book and there was one particular um, ex-partner of mine whose story needed to be included in the book and I had a very the lead up I knew that I had to talk to him about it before I included it because you know it's his story as mm. well 
Um, and the, the fear and the lead up to having that conversation with him was so overwhelming for me. But I also knew that it was definitely part of the process and there was no way it couldn't be included in the book. And um, he actually, it turned out to be a really wonderful meeting and he was, you know, very um, happy and proud to be part of that story. Mm. And But without getting his permission, it didn't oh, yeah. feel right for me. Even though his and name was changed, there was no way to identify him. I knew that it was still his story as well. And that's something I've learned the hard way. So my first book, I was very young. Um, I was also very grief-stricken, mm. which I think is an important thing to, to acknowledge. And I was very blinded by grief. I didn't ask anyone's permission. I um, wrote a lot about of personal information about people within my life who I hadn't asked permission. And my first husband's family in Ireland now don't want anything to do with me anymore. Oh. And haven't spoken to me since the book came out. Oh, wow. And so I really, really learned the hard way. Yeah. Um, a very important lesson that I've never, ever forgotten. Um, and so now, you know, you can also say a lot by saying very little, like how I just described my second husband. You know, he's a kind man who unfortunately got caught up in my grief. That's how I've described him in an article before. And that's all I need to say about that relationship for you to hopefully understand it. Mm. Um, and you can fill in the gaps for yourself as a reader. Um, but I'm not going to delve any. And, you know, and then you have pushback from some editors like the Daily Mail are very desperate for me to write an article um, comparing my three marriages. Um, or talking about the the woman I was in marriage one, two, and three, and I've said to them, you know, I just I just won't. Um, and they've said, well, we don't want you to write about your that we don't want you to write about that part of your life first, then because you know the reader needs to know everything about your second marriage. And you know, with respect and grace, that's I I don't agree with that. And so you stick to your boundaries as a writer and a storyteller. You know exactly what line you don't want to cross, and if you miss out on opportunities because of that, so be it. And and you sit comfortably within that. Absolutely. Because what's the alternative that you mm. that you write the piece and you feel this And you're ashamed and, and you and feel shame, resentment yeah. and it's out there forever. You know, that's the thing in the age of the internet. It is yeah. out there. And you have to be prepared for your boss to read it and your new partner to read it and your children to read it and your parents to read it. Like we have to, that's why I think we need to, we need to really be, become better at conscious self-editing because, um, you know, there's a lot at stake here. It's out there. It's tied to us forever. Have you had a moment with an editor where they've wanted to take out a piece um, of your story that you think is vital for people to know? Thankfully not, and I think only because of my publisher's Hay House. Um, so they really gave me leniency to kind of probably delve into subjects that other um, publishing houses might be a little scared to tiptoe into. Like, mm. you know, there's a chapter in my book on um, past life regression, which even I know is, you know, a little bit woo-woo, but it's really intrinsic to my story because yeah. um, it's linked to how I overcame my eating disorder. And I actually added it in at the very last minute before we went to press because I met at a barbecue um, a couple whose daughter had died of anorexia 10 years earlier, and they asked me how did you survive? Like, what was the thing that saved you? And I realized that I couldn't, you know, write all about my eating disorder in the book and then miss out this big 
chunk which was one of the um the last piece of the jigsaw for me mm. um you know i couldn't not put it in there because i'm scared that people would think i'm a little bit of a hippie and we'll get to that chapter and be turned off you know i have to put it in there <laughs> so mean, i did yeah <laughs> i know I'm, I'm a bit the same i always put the caveat around it like oh not to sound too woo woo yeah or, or you can be skeptical yeah. <laughs> and you know that's like my husband's a atheist scientist you know, I have that. It's good. He keeps me very much grounded and I run things past him and I get his seal of approval. And if he says, no, you've described that in a way that I can I can understand. And even if I don't agree with, I can I can relate to why you believe that. Yeah. Um, he's a pretty good test for me as someone who's, you know, a bit of a skeptic himself. Um, but, yeah, you know, I'm I'm lucky that Hay House, because they work within that spiritual space, they didn't get to that chapter and go, oh, my God, we are not publishing that. They actually love it. And I've just recorded a podcast with them on um, could a past life be causing your eating oh, issues. Oh, love it. I, I know. <laughs> and actually, funny enough, um, of everything in the book, I've had a lot of women come up to me and say that was the chapter that actually we could not get over in a good way that's yeah. made us stop and go, wow, even though we – never thought about past life before and we never have a belief system that aligns for that but when we got to that chapter it really made us stop and think so I'm so happy I put it in there and that's what it's all about isn't it when you share your stories and offer new ways of thinking to people exactly and 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 you know tiptoeing into that area that you know might be a new way of thinking and might challenge your reader and you know having faith in the reader that they can be challenged mm. you know that like my my readers they are intelligent open-minded incredible people and um yeah having faith that they they can deal with thinking about the new ideas even if um you know they are a little bit skeptical they will still have an open mind yeah on that topic do you and i came up a lot with against this a lot as I was writing and I was just wondering what your process is it is with it when you're writing are you is there a part of you and I guess that it's more prevalent in this digital age that we live in that you are thinking about what the or like you're you're prophesizing what the criticism might be or what the trolls are going to say and censoring Mm. yourself find like finding yourself censoring yourself when you don't really want to be I think probably not consciously. I think we all do subconsciously. I don't think you can be, you know, um, I don't think you can be aging in the social media world without on some level being aware of that. Um, But I don't do it in a way that I think really affects my writing. So, yeah, I'm sure it is happening on some level, but not in a kind of anxiety-causing way that would give me writer's block or Mm. make me unable to let my writing flow I think I'm probably more aware for other people I'm probably a little bit less protective myself but when I'm ghostwriting for other people I'm definitely more aware that I don't want to put them in a situation where they might face undue criticism because they're going to be the ones that stand up exactly they're going to be the one that has to face it so that might mean me me just saying to them are you sure you want to put this in you know or I think you know we should probably put a sentence in there that kind of you know there are legalities you have to think of as well and I'm sure you're you're learning this with your book you know there, there are certain um, disclaimers you have you know if you're giving out financial advice you need to put a disclaimer in there that says this is my own personal experience and um, you know this is not a guarantee that this advice is going to work for you 
you really need to there are certain real legal guidelines you need to work within um and you know the same with defamation you have to be careful who you're writing about yeah um you know if for, for me I, I say to people if you're worried about writing about someone's story make them anonymous change their gender change their age change their profession you know you can hide someone's identity without taking away from the message that you're sharing so again it's not being inauthentic saying um you know a guy i know in his 20s who worked in advertising went through ex this experience when actually it's a woman in her 30s mm. who is an artist and who had the experience yeah that that's not it doesn't take away from the story exactly but it, you're protecting the people that matter to you yeah okay i've got one final question for you how do we not become our stories? I mean, there must have been a mm. point in your career where you were defined as the 23-year-old widow. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I, a part of me is still defined as a 23-year-old widow or, you know, <laughs> I had... you're I, 34 and married Exactly. With, with and I had someone, you know, I had someone write under one of my articles. I, don't, I generally don't read comments. I'm not even sure how I saw this, but someone wrote under an article I wrote for The Guardian you know, will she ever stop writing about her dead husband? Oh, God. I know. And do you know what? Honestly, probably not to some degree. You know, I won't be writing every article, one article a week or a column about it. But it's probably somewhere, you know, within the year, um, one sentence will come up that might reference the day that I was widowed. But it will be 100% relevant and 100% necessary. Yeah. Um, and I think that's um, what... I've learned, you know, is it, do you really need to rehash that part of your story right now? Or do you need, need to dedicate four pages to it when you could actually dedicate two sentences with it? Yes. And say, you know, I was widowed at the age of 23, and on you go to the next thing. Yeah. Because I think we are, in a way, all defined by our stories, but our stories are far longer than just one little element that happened. You know, I'm defined by my story because I'm a 34-year-old mother of two who met her third husband in the rainforest after being divorced and widowed and watching my father be paralyzed from cancer and suffering from eating disorder. And I'm a million other chapters within that. So we are all defined by our story. But I think the problem is when we get caught up by one tiny subheading of one chapter within our stories. And we get stuck on that, and and then and then we can't create new stories. We just exactly that old story, yeah. Because we think, you know, that's it. Like I remember after I was widowed, with the best intention in the world, my mum said to me, um, after watching you nurse a terminally ill man and bury him, in my eyes, you don't need to do anything else. Like to me, you're done. Like I'm in. <laughs> in other words, you know, she was saying it in a yeah. way of like, I'm amazed by what you've done. But to me, I absorbed that as in, what, that's it? I'm 23. And I'm done. Like, I'm <laughs> yeah. done? I don't need to achieve anything else in life? I'm done now? Um, and I think that's the danger when you get yeah. into that mindset. And, you know, I've, I've done wonderful things since then. And I'm very happy my story didn't end on that day. <laughs> now, Amy, you're putting together an amazing digital workshop Mm. that takes people through this writing process, right? Can you tell us a little yeah. bit more about that? So it's called Storytelling for Healing. Um, it's uh, a 
two consecutive Sundays in November. Um, it's an hour on the first Sunday, an hour on the second, and you can tune in from anywhere in the world or watch it as a rerun. Because for my work, last workshop, I had people tuning in from the US and London, and um, some of them, it was in the middle of the night, so they watched a rerun. And it really looks at whether you want to write a book or a blog or social media captions, or you just have a backstory and you know, in conversations, you think, when is the right time to share this about myself and how do I find the words? Um, this workshop takes you through how to write through trauma, how to self-sense yourself, um, how to find the right audience to share and the right medium to share your story. Um, and then it also takes you through, um, you know, some it takes you through the emotional side, like we talked about creating ceremony and support system around your writing, but also the practical side of how to pitch to an editor, how to get a book publisher, mm. um, how to create a community by storytelling. So there's a lot in there, but um, really the, the crux of it is, um, you know, storytelling is healing, but how can we do it in a way that doesn't leave us feeling vulnerable with that sick feeling of oversharing in our stomach and writer's regret. How can we find a way to um, share our story whilst protecting ourselves? Yeah, beautiful. So if people want to sign up for that and find out more, where should they go? Yeah, so um, you can head to my Instagram is the easiest way, which is um, at amy underscore Malloy. Um, and all the information is on there or my website's amymalloy.me um, and you can get all of the information through there as well so or just yeah you know reach out to me for either of those and I'd be able to help you in any way that I can beautiful I'll put all of those links in the show notes so it's super easy for people to find them and Amy thank you so much for sharing your That's story a pleasure. and sharing all of this wisdom today it's been great That's lovely to talk about it thank you So the podcast is back in full swing. You can expect an episode once a week, but make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss it when it comes out. Plus, the more people that subscribe, the more people find out about the podcast. So if you haven't done so yet, hop onto iTunes, press subscribe. And while you're there, I would love if you'd leave me a rating or review. And to keep up to date with everything that's going on in my world, follow me on Instagram at Jordana Levine. And if you're into the moon and manifestation, his little secret, that's what my book's about, then you'll want to be following me in the Lunar Nights Facebook group. And to do that, all you have to do is request to join and I'll accept that request. Hope to see you in there. Until next time, I'm Jordana Levine wishing you an inspirational week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.